Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Lucia and I are talking with Martha Baumgarten and Renee Rodolfi of the Chicago Teachers Union. In part two, they talk to us about their strike and the conditions in the Chicago public charter schools. I'm curious about how y'all see um, charter school unionization within the larger um, movement to unionize public school teachers. Um, I know that, so in Chicago, y'all have merged as part of the same Mm -hmm. local, um, or the charter schools and the Mm non-charter public schools have have merged. Um, But I know that in in other places, there have been like, non-charter school public school teachers have had beef with the idea of charter school teachers unionizing. So what do do those conversations look like? And to what extent is the unionization of charter school teachers oriented towards the abolition of charter schools? Oh, that is such a fraught question. Um, So there, I'm glad you brought up abolition because my first was to say, I want to live in a world where charter schools no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I will let Martha take this because she's definitely been at the table way more than me and has heard those conversations. Media oh. communication spokesperson, Martha. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, to start, there was a huge beef with a lot of public school Chicago Teachers Union teachers. Um, with charter school unionization for a really, really, really long time. Um, because a lot of CTU, CPS, public school teachers had a huge beef with charters in general. Um, and that's totally understandable. Like I said before, charter schools are almost exclusively taking away students and funding from public schools that were already trying their best to operate it to the highest quality possible. Um, and we're making that more difficult. We're making their, their mission more difficult. Um, and so CTU for a long time has had a very anti-charter stance. Um, and that did bleed over to charter organization for a long time. Um, the distinction I really ask public school teachers to make is between charter management organizations and chart teachers who teach in charter schools. Um, because so many of them are young teachers like Renee and I were, um, who that was the place to get a job. So when we think about it that way, um, that everyone deserves to work um, and everyone is trying their best to feed themselves and perhaps feed a family, um, and things like that, that, yeah, everyone, everyone deserves a job um, that makes them feel fulfilled and makes them feel like they're contributing to society. And every worker deserves a union is like something I feel very strongly, like end of sentence, every worker deserves a union. Um, and so when you think about it that way, then we should be organizing charter schools because every worker deserves a union. Um, And oftentimes, even though they're complicit kind of in the charter, teachers who work in charter schools are complicit kind of in the charter system, um, they're not maybe as cognizant as they could be about the situation. Um, And so just pushing them out of the union um, and out of the organizing space is not going to make that any better. Um, I think the other thing is that 
charters are here whether we like them or not. Kind of like Walmart is here whether we like it or not. Um, and so I know there's some people who would like to like just end funding tomorrow and um, like have charter schools just go away. And part of me wants that. The fact is that there is, they are here. And so I believe what we should do is use the power of teachers unions, which are some of the most powerful unions in the country. Once again, with that accountability piece to hold the organizations that currently exist accountable. Um, and to like make sure they're not perpetuating their model on the backs of teachers and low-income students and students of color. Um, and I think one of the only ways to do that is through a union. Um, the Chicago Teachers Union CPS contract does have a moratorium on new charter schools written into it. Um, so that's, you know, kind of one way that I think we've kind of been able to find a balance between um, calling for immediate abolition um, and that really scaring the teachers who work in a charter school and have those jobs um, and stopping the expansion of the charter system in Chicago. Um, and there's one other thing I was going to say. And then I think also just thinking about that we're all striving for the same things, that we're all striving for the empowerment, the real empowerment um, of public school students in the city of Chicago. Um, kind of focusing on that bigger organizing goal um, was really important to kind of getting the charter schoolhouse and the public schoolhouse in the same tent. Um, and then when we went on strike um, now two winters ago in the winter of 2018, um, and I guess like the winter of 2019, um, seeing that uh, charter school teachers were really willing to go out on the line and really really willing to put their money where their mouth was, I think um, convinced a lot of public school teachers that were in this um, union fight together. Well, could you uh, explain to us or describe for us mm -hmm. the conditions at your charter school and some of the other charter schools in Chicago, uh, class size, yeah. um, uh, physical building, uh, sure. you know, funding, that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, in Chicago, charter schools are funded pretty much the same per pupil amount um, as Chicago public schools. It'll like one year charter schools will get like 3% less per kid. Um, another year they'll get like 5% more per, per kid. But essentially they're funded the same. Um, Chicago public schools are also funded on a per pupil funding basis um, because you do, or families do have some autonomy depending on like a whole bunch of factors on even which Chicago public school they enroll their kids in sometimes. Um, so everyone is subject to the very like complicating factor of per pupil funding. Um, in the charter school that Renee and I worked at, um, the students, or we had 32 students to a class, um, and that was kindergarten through eighth grade of the charter school. We, the charter network we worked for had some high schools as well, and that was true at the high school level, even for things like lab science um, and like high school PE, there was 32 kids in a class. Um, that, that also, just to jump in there, that was the cap, but they always filled the, the seats. Mm -hmm. So they yeah. never, there was never a year when we had less than 32. In fact, there was one year 
I took an additional student and had 33 in my classroom mm -hmm. because they needed an extra seat filled in sixth grade and there I had a sibling. So they are willing to stretch a lot of boundaries with teachers. Um, and the student I took was lovely. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was lovely, but you know, they're willing to stretch a lot of boundaries with teachers to keep that uh, to keep their classrooms at full enrollment so that they can get as much money as they can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in our charter school network, like I said, there's 32 student, students in kindergarten and the kindergarten teachers had an assistant, um, a teaching assistant, but the first grade teachers did not. Um, so the first grade teachers had 32 students uh, <laughs> alone in a classroom. Um, like I said, when we started, there was no system for late student pickups. There was no recess for students. Um, we didn't have a library. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else notable, Renee, about our charter school specifically. You think of anything else? I mean, I think like... recess was the biggest thing for me. I, yeah. there was never recess the entire time I was there. And, and that was not because we didn't have the conversation. I think Martha and I brought it up every single year with our yeah. school leader. And every time we were told it was just simply impossible, which didn't end up being the case because now they have recess. Yeah, <laughs> thanks to the union, they have recess. Um, but I think the experience in our charter school, and it was part of a network of 15 charter schools that are spread pretty um, much throughout the city of Chicago. It's pretty representative of what is going on in charter schools um, in Chicago broadly. Um, usually the teacher workday is quite a bit longer than the public school workday. Um, usually the teacher workday includes quite a bit more what we call duty time um, in CTU land where you're supervising students but not actually like teaching them, um, which is not a great use of teacher time. Um, Prep time in charter schools is generally lower um, than in the Chicago public schools, and pay is almost always um, lower than Chicago public schools for teachers. Um, the, some of the benefits um, are that you generally actually earn something close to tenure. It's not called tenure, a little bit sooner than you do in a lot of public schools. Um, I think because they're so desperate to retain teachers um, and make staying like worthwhile for teachers. Um, and sometimes you have some more flexibility in terms of funding things or administrative decisions. Um, I know for me and my activism as a union organizer, it was a lot easier to kind of steer the ship of my one charter school network with 15 schools than it was to try to impact change in, you know, CPS with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of schools. Um, so I think kind of the, you have an opportunity as a teacher and as a organizer to kind of be a bigger fish in a small pond um, in the charter school landscape. But, you know, to me, the positives don't outweigh the negatives. Um, I, yeah. And if I could add to that, and I, Martha, you can jump in here too. I'm not sure, having not worked in CPS, the public school system, I'm not sure if this is the way it works. Um, with CPS teachers, but I do know that the way we were evaluated in the charter school where we worked, um, I, what was, I don't remember the percentage, maybe you can help me out. It was like more than 50% or oh, maybe 50% yeah. was weighted based on our students' test scores alone. Mm -hmm. um, and in no other role, any in any other field, yeah. ever 
be evaluated more than 50% or at 50%, mostly on the performance of someone else. Yeah. Um, and so Martha and I would historically get really great ratings in terms of our teaching and like all the technical capabilities of our teaching. Um, and then our students test scores, which as we know, testing is inherently racist and benefits only one group of people. And so did not, which was not our students. Uh, and so our test scores were not where they would be if they lived in suburban Chicago in a mostly white, white wealthy neighborhood. And so our, we constantly got a talking to about yeah. that. Um, yeah. Luckily together, usually. Yeah, usually. It was <laughs> Luckily they would sit us down together so we weren't alone in a room with scary bosses. But <laughs> Yeah, but basically it boiled down to intimidation tactics to tell us we needed to get it together and that we weren't ever doing enough. And when you're not, when you're told constantly that you're not ever doing enough, that is not an environment that anybody wants to work in. Um, I, I, I honestly, I think my first year I taught at that specific charter school, I did get a decent amount of um, praise from our school leader. And after that, um, did not receive the same praise just due to the kind of the testing scores um, and just felt like, I was replaceable um, and it just felt like anybody could come in here and do this job and if I wasn't performing the way that the test scores wanted me to perform uh, or wanted my students to perform rather um, that m me as an individual didn't need to be there I was completely replaceable and I think that is what kind of played out in why I had to leave um, during, in the middle of one of the years I was teaching because I, you know, with my chronic illness and dealing with that, everything that came with it in my personal life. And um, it just, I, I, I could no longer set myself on fire to keep everybody else warm. Um, and that's what I was doing at my job. I was working 12 hour days still in my fifth year teaching. Um, Martha and I would get there at, 6 30 a.m however early we could get we yeah. get there when the when the custodial staff got there because they had the keys to unlock it but that's when they got there so we would get there at 6 30 and we would leave around 6 or 6 30 every day and it was my fifth year teaching and I just could not do it um and so I think I can't stress enough that the way charter schools set up their culture for teachers is so harmful because they're not actually invested in developing teachers. They're invested in developing robots who are easily replaceable and are, are just going to follow their rules and do what they say rather than think critically and grow and learn and reflect. That's a strong statement, but that is, Oh, I, truly yeah. how I feel. Absolutely. No, Renee, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it makes me think that like so often the conversation about charter schools is framed around the particular kinds of like really physically coercive pedagogies imposed on sure. students. Like you need to, you have yeah. so much time to pick up your pencil and you yeah. um, need to be tracking the teacher with your eyes at all time and sitting up straight, but that those physical pedagogies are also 
also being imposed on the teachers to develop the teachers as oh, as, for sure. as yeah. the students. And so the, the, the learning is happening at all levels here. Yeah. Um, it makes me think though that like this moment of going on, like launching the first charter school strike um, mm -hmm. in the United States is a huge disruption in those itineraries of embodiment. So what was that like? Um, what was that like to be out there um, and to organize it? Because that's a yeah. full-time job on top of the 12 hour a day job that you were already doing. Right, yeah. So um, yeah, so that part, the balancing both was hard. Luckily, Renee would come over and let up my dog. So that's how she contributed to the movement. <laughs> Um, which is very nice of her. Um, so yeah, I think that first charter school strike was a really big schism, like you said, and kind of the whole fabric of like how charter schools are supposed to work. I think as organizing has kind of slowly built up and unionization has slowly happened um, in charter schools, um, especially in LA, Chicago, New York, and Ohio. Um, like that's, slowly kind of messed with the charter school system and those people in power, what they're expecting out of their charter schools. Um, but I think the strike was a really big change, um, especially because I think quite a few charter schools, including our own, had taken strike votes, but not actually gone out on strike. Um, and so I think there was a real sense among charter management organizations it's like okay guys you're not really gonna do this like that's what public school teachers do but like you're not really gonna do this um and so when we did do it i think in some ways we even surprised ourselves as charter school teachers um when we you know i so i was on the bargaining team um for the acero contract um just like clarity in i in I think almost every state, um, since charter schools are each their own employer, each charter school network or management organization, all the employees of that group will have their own um, contract, employment contract. Um, so I have, or the Acero charter school teachers had a different contract than the Chicago public school teachers. Then um, the CICS was another charter school um, group in Chicago. They had their own um, contract. And so um, I was on the negotiating team for the Acero contract for Acero teachers. Um, and like up until like the moment we told them, like, we're not coming to work tomorrow. Um, I don't know if we believe we were going to say it out loud. <laughs> um, we had a very, very um, experienced labor lawyer, Robert Block, who's kind of the king of labor um, attorneys in Chicago. And, and if he hadn't said it for us, I don't know if we ever would have had the nerve to say it. Like saying that to the people who pay your paychecks is like really scary. Um, but we did it. And then I think there was a huge doubt in our, um, amongst our negotiating team if all the other teachers are really going to walk out with us. Uh, I know we knew that they supported us and we had laid so much groundwork um, for people to be ready, but obviously that's still like completely terrifying. Um, but then once um, we were actually out on the picket lines, it was so exhilarating. Um, and we had so many people supporting us um, from all over, you know, the city, 
um, by that point, the CTU um, public school teachers had really gotten behind us. And so having that huge majority of the public educators in the city, um, they were still in their buildings um, and still teaching, but just having their support um, was like so amazing. Um, having the support of aldermen um, and other uh, state and city leaders was just like so amazing. Um, and there was people who were against it or didn't think it was a good idea, but the huge majority, I think, of the Chicago community understood why we needed to strike and how we had gotten there, um, that there had been lots of negotiation, that there had been systematic problems, you know, for years and years and years. Um, and so, like, the amount of support we had was just awesome. Um, and then the thing that like no one tells you is that like striking can be really fun. Um, in some ways it can be really monotonous and boring because a lot of it is just walking in a circle in front of a building. Um, but a lot of it is also having like really great conversations with your coworkers, some coworkers that you probably don't get to interface with very much when you're not walking in a circle outside of a school building. Um, because it is boring and monotonous, you know, you get up to antics and get to do fun things like dance offs and make creative signs and, things like that. Um, and like I said, it's just such a cool um, opportunity to like really experience small scale democracy in like the coolest way. Um, our group of educators decided to kind of organize things after the first day that we were out on the picket line um, where teachers would be picketing in front of their schools in the morning, but then go out and do a community action um, during the afternoon. So they might go visit an alderman's office or another city leader's office. They might come together from multiple schools um, and um, like rally together in a public park. Um, you know, there was all different things they did. Um, and I think that's really powerful as well to like go to an alderman's office um, and with a group and say like, hey, listen to us. And then like hear the alderman listen to you and like see changes happen, see after that happened, um, public figures make public statements or call the CEO of our charter network and ask him to end the strike and things like that to like see change happen because um, of your actions is obviously really empowering. Um, and then what was really cool for us, so we were the first charter school ever to go on um, strike, but then like less than a month, I think it might have still been in December and I can get some dates for you. A charter school in Ohio went on strike, and then a charter school in LA went on strike. Um, and then later that spring, um, I'm, I don't have a number, but I can get one for you guys. But several of our charter um, brothers and sisters in Chicago went on strike. Um, what, a, a handful of schools went on strike um, first all together, and then a handful of um, what we call like one-off charters or single charters all went on strike at the same time together to support each other. Um, and so that was really cool to just see that momentum and see all the wins that we had that made our school better for students and teachers. Um, but then because suddenly now those charter management organizations took us a lot more seriously once we did it. Um, to be able to see all those other charter school contracts reflect some of those same wins. Um, so that was really, really cool. And then see that energy then again flip over um, to this past fall, to the um, fall of 2019, um, 
CRCT, public school brothers and sisters be ready to go on strike um, and fight for things in their contract and kind of see all that swirl together into like a really cool organizing um, like soup uh, was really, really rewarding and cool. Well, unfortunately, we're at time. It's just, it's flown by. This has been yeah. wonderful um, hearing about the work that you're doing, which is so important. Um, so if we could get you to comment on the current situation and the current moment of being in a pandemic and, and going to online and, and what, what does that mean for your uh, union and your organizing and your teaching? Yeah, I can kind of kick us off. So, yeah. um, you know, stepping into what will be a new role for me this year as a, hopefully, fingers crossed, school social worker. Um, I think we are at a really important moment. And I'm, I, I think a lot of folks have said that in recent months, um, where we have reached this new normal. And things cannot go back to the way they were. I, I think we've, we've had time to sit in our homes, reflect on what's worked, what hasn't. And given this new push from our federal government to return to schools in person this fall and the threat of pulling funding from schools who don't return to in-person learning. I think that this gives us an opportunity to teach kids what's actually important in this moment. Because what's important in this moment is not necessarily knowing your multiplication tables and understanding where a comma goes in a sentence. What's important in this moment right now is teaching students empathy to understand that wearing a mask is good for everyone, um, that uh, caring about a collective action like that, that is a small inconvenience, is actually something that you can do as an individual um, toward a collective goal. And teaching students to think critically about what the pros and cons are of continuing remote learning or doing in-person schooling. I think if we listen to, act, to students, to actual kids right now, um, they, they, miss, they miss their friends, they miss their teachers, they miss school as it was in person, and they know how important it is to be staying home to, for the protection of their community. And they're willing to do it. You know, I think Martha kind of alluded to this earlier in the conversation, but students in general um, are obsessed with this idea of justice and what is fair. Uh, we've all had a student in our classroom who has said, that's not fair and this is why, and they are willing to stand up for it. And we should be honing in on that and teaching students that that's, this is the moment to be thinking critically and to thinking, about what is fair, what is just for your fellow classmates, what is just for your mom, your grandma, your neighbor next door. Um, this is not the moment to be pushing students back into classrooms uh, as a science experiment so that 
we can go back to business as usual and make money. Um, and so I think, I think that to me, this moment in understanding kind of the, the uh, if I can wrap it up with our conversation about charter schools, like understanding the harms that capitalism has caused in our society in creating cogs that just keep turning a wheel that is harmful to so many people. Let's also look at our practice and education in not creating those same cogs that just turn a wheel that harms more people. Let's create more empathic and more critical thinkers um, in our students who want that. They want that and they, they're looking to us for it. And, and it's our job to, to lead them in that direction, but also to, to listen to what they are saying and to let them lead. Um, I think for me, teaching in the current moment, um, like I said before, I, you know, I experienced burnout and I had to make a transition out of um, teaching in the city of Chicago proper to the suburbs. Um, and this whole situation has really highlighted to me the disparities between um, what's going on, you know, in our low-income neighborhoods and urban centers versus what's going on in the rest of the country, especially in terms of technology. Um, you know, I, it was so much easier for me to support my students um, that I had this past school year because I had so many fewer of them. So it was so much easier to reach out to them digitally and stay in touch with all their families and address their needs. And I just can't imagine doing that. Um, with 32 students or even the one you guys in CPS, I had a class of 36 and I can't imagine um, even getting close to meeting the needs of 36 students at once digitally in a pandemic in crisis teaching. Um, so to me, it's just really highlighted even more than maybe being in a physical building, the disparities that we have across our country and all the problems with funding. Um, and then specifically speaking to the charter school model, and like the school choice model and per pupil funding. Um, I think this fall, we're gonna really see the potential detriments of per pupil funding um, in urban areas and cities that fund that way. Um, because I think whether parents choose not to enroll their students and homeschool them or enroll them in like online charters. I mean, there's like so many questions about the fall but so many schools, public and charter, are then not, we're going to have less enrollment and are going to therefore have less funding and things are just going to compound and become exponentially more difficult um, for those schools. And so I think we're about to see like a real crisis in um, how that funding works laid on top of just the funding deficits that our states are going to have and the ridiculous things that are being threatened at the federal level. Um, so I think there's, so I, I just keep thinking about how our funding is so unequal and so unjust um, in America, the way we fund our public school system um, and how the communities that often need the most support are often the schools that need the least or are the schools that receive the least. Um, and I think we're just gonna see that gap widen even more um, as the pandemic continues, unfortunately. Um, I'm. I don't want to say excited. I'm happy that I'm seeing more and more teachers speak up 
um, for more equitable funding and for things like universal child care and a universal basic income um, and just things like that that would make our society a better place. I see more and more teachers um, thinking through those things and thinking through the way like our society works as a whole. So I'm hoping that, you know, this is a moment where we kind of come to a reckoning as a society or at least as educators. Um, but I think time will tell. Yeah, those are, um, those are momentous words on which to end. <laughs> we will, we are kind of at the brink of something. Um, yeah. Before we sign off entirely, I want to invite you all to say anything that um, you want to add that you feel like is still on the table and needs to be addressed um, and or to join us in our uh, podcast tradition of ending with what are you reading, watching, listening to right now that you would like to share with the world? Um, I can go first. Um, so I think I think I want to talk about two things that are maybe like not, I don't, I don't know what people normally say, but I am reading the um, second series in the children of blood and, or sorry, the second book in the series, children of blood and bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Um, and um, it is a young adult fantasy novel that is Afrofuturistic. Um, so it's set in Western Africa. Um, it has a lot of, like, a lot of the characters speak Yoruba and things like that. Um, and so I just, for me, it's been a really fascinating way. A, it's enjoyable and a great series. Um, but B, it's really made me take a step back and kind of reconsider young adult literature and the literature that I recommend to kids and the literature that's just out there for kids to find, um, even if they have the best anti-rest anti-racist librarian on the planet. Um, there's not a lot of books like this out there. And so it's just been really interesting for me to think about more traditional children's literature um, and what it could be if we try to be more inclusive of what we publish and get into the hands of kids. Um, I'll also share, so I stepping, just stepping out of grad school about a month ago, I think I took about a month off of reading. Um, <laughs> because I did a lot of reading over the last two years, but um, something that I am actually about to start reading, and I, I've read an excerpt of so far, is Ghosts in the Schoolyard by Dr. Eve Ewing, um, who is a Chicago native, and she is, was a professor at my school. Um, I, I took one of her classes, and she is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to um, CPS in the schools in Chicago and the way that her I, I mean she's also a poet um, she I, I the way that her she is able to write about these complex issues specifically in Chicago and um, the book chronicles the closing of several uh, Chicago public schools mostly on the south and west sides of Chicago which are mostly black and brown neighborhoods um, and the way she takes these big concepts and breaks them down into like really understandable, um, digestible words is just incredible and she is brilliant. So um, I would highly recommend it. I'm, I'm a very avid reader of nonfiction. Um, I'll dabble in, in fiction every once in a while, um, usually on Martha's uh, recommendation, <laughs> but, um, 
but yeah, I, I, I would highly recommend it for sure. Especially if you're, if you're, um, looking for a read on, on public education in Chicago specifically, it gives a really good view of the Chicago context. Good. Tina? I am reading the racial Recon the racial healing handbook. Um, that is, uh, I'll show it to you. This in preparation for an ethics class in the fall. Um, uh, practical activities to help you challenge privilege, confront systemic racism, and engage in collective healing by Annalise Singh. Um, so that's one of the things I'm reading. What am I reading right now? I've been reading a lot of cookbooks. Um, I, I got a new ice cream maker and um, have been making all manner of frozen yogurt. And um, this has been a nice break in the evenings from reading to prepare for my classes in the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and also very delicious in my hot attic apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so good to meet both of you. Um, yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much. It was nice to meet you both. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we are inspired and uh, we know our listeners will be too. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our producer is China Wilson. Our research assistant for the summer of 2020 is Kennedy Thedford. Our intro music and interstitial music for the beginning of part two is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. We're very pleased to have as our outro music in part one and part two, uh, music by Mark McKee, uh, the brother of Lucia Holsether. Um, Mark plays beats and Max Bowen uh, does the rap and their band is A Crisis. Um, the music is A Good Spy Reprise from Children Singing in Hell and TTE from Unemployed Spy. Uh, a Crisis' music is available on Bandcamp.com. Uh, we remember Mark. Uh, may he rest in power. So